podcast has bad words. <laughs> Hello, patrons. What's up, y'all? Thanks so much for your support. All right, before we dive into our surprise questions today, and boy, do we have quite a few. And before we talk about spring clutter, before we talk about letting go of everything, let's read some more about Les, Ryan. Mm. Gia Tolentino <clears throat> is one of my favorite writers. She actually wrote the article you and I were talking about with... Um, Jeanette McCurdy. Uh, yes. The, she wrote the Instagram face article. Yeah. She also wrote this article about religion and drug use in the South while she was growing up, which is amazing. Uh, this church she went to, they called it, it was so big, they called it the Repentagon. Oh, wow. Uh, she is just one of my favorite writers. Uh, and then last year, she wrote an article about uh, Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. Yeah. And... Uh, sort of pointing out the upsides and the downsides, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and now she wrote this article about minimalism because a new book came out by uh, uh, Kyle Chaika. Oh, yeah. He, he, he's written about us before. He went, on, he went to, I think, a couple tour stops with yeah, us. Yeah, he was in Cincinnati in, with us for sure. Yeah, and I feel like he... Oh, he, what he did is he met with some of the minimalist meetup groups that we have over at minimalist.org. Yeah. And so Kyle wrote a really great article about us in, the, in New York Magazine. Yes. And you can actually still find it on New York Magazine's blog. Their blog is called The Cut. Yeah. Uh, but it was in the, the print magazine. And you have a giant hair right there on the table, oh, Ryan. thank you. You know what I like about uh, Kyle, man, is, first off, he's a really nice guy. And I could tell, like, he's a good journalist. And a great writer. And a great writer. And, you know, he, I think the first article he wrote about minimalism was, it was a critique. Yeah. And, and then he came out and joined us to like really see what it was about. And I feel like we did a good job of presenting to him what we're about. Yeah. And cause, he, Cause on the surface you can assume a lot of things and that's, you know what, what this article kind of does. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just love that story because it was like, he asked to come out on tour stops and it's not like we were like, well, dude, you just shredded us in an article, you know, not yeah. too long ago. He shredded the whole minimalist movement. Basically. Yeah. 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 And so, in fact, I knew that he did, and I I kept that from you and Sean and everyone else when he came out on tour with us because I didn't want you to have like I didn't want you to be on guard. Yeah, because I would have had some pretense with it, right? And uh, not not defensive, but I probably would have just yeah I wouldn't have uh, I would have been more on guard for sure. Yes, that is true. Yeah. And you probably wouldn't have let him interview your mom, which he did, and he yeah. interviewed like a whole bunch of people from our minimalist.org uh, meetup group mm-hmm. and he came out to the Cincinnati stop, which by the way, our 2017 tour of all 50 cities we did, the worst event was the Cincinnati event <laughs> because we were at Bogarts and like the, the technical area. Yeah, only one of our microphones worked, so we had to share a microphone. That was and the first that was the first time our uh, first venue I ever saw a legit concert in. I saw Everlast open up for Sugar Ray. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember just like, because I forget if it was Everlast or Sugar Ray, they were talking about the, the green room and, you know, how crazy, what goes on in the green room. And I just remember, you know, as a high school kid thinking, man, I couldn't imagine ever being up on that stage. And then, <laughs> and then like we get to Bogarts and like we have the whole experience and I was like, man, I really built this up in my head uh-huh. as to what this would be. Right. <laughs> and so he came on tour with us there and he, he wrote about it and I thought, actually, we'll put a link to that article in, in the show notes to this Patreon Maximal episode and... I thought he did a really fair job. It wasn't it wasn't like a, a glowing endorsement, but he, he's a journalist. It wasn't yeah. meant to be. Now Kyle, he just published his first book, and it is called 
The Longing for Less, Mm -hmm. uh, Living with Minimalism is the subtitle. And he writes about the minimalist movement. And actually, the book, I think, starts out with us. I started reading the book recently. He sent Mm -hmm. us a copy of it. Oh, cool. And and it it's a somewhat of a critique of the minimalist lifestyle. Sure. And but it's also a critique more on minimalist art. And so he really ties in the majority of the book is more about minimalist art. Uh, Donald Judd and 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 um, Cage who did the four minute and thirty three second silent opera or silent song. Um, and and so he he sort of talks about. I read the whole it, it just it just brings like, you know, it's like they listen to Philip Glass and they just went to a whole other level and just did four minutes of silence. Right, and so he yeah. he talks about that, and so on this occasion, Gia, who is one of my favorite writers out there right now, writes in my favorite publication. Period. The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I read every single week. Uh, she writes this article. Now, the online title for this thing is The Pitfalls and the Potential of the New Minimalism. So we're going to read through this. We're going to go mm-hmm. through this today. I'll probably read more today than we typically do, but we'll still use it as a jump-off point. If you're reading it in the print edition, it's in the February 3rd print edition of The New Yorker, and I think the non-salacious title is just Simple Plans. That's what it was in The New Yorker. Yeah, like in, in, in the, the printed, print. In the printed version. Right. So, huh. But this is from... Well, I mean, their job is to aggregate eyeballs, so... Yeah, to aggregate clicks. Right. And so <clears throat> the subtitle of this is The Mantra of Less is More Still Obeys a Logic of Accumulation, but it hints at genuinely different ways of thinking. Now... Ryan, you and I are probably going to have different points of view on this. I would love to talk to you about yeah. it. I, I have my own opinions, obviously. Yeah. But uh, as we should, man. Yes. I mean, that's what makes the world go round. If we all had the same exact opinions, it'd be a pretty boring place. So the reason she's writing this article is uh, Kyle's new book came out, right? Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to to talk about that, but she had to you know, do so in the. He's written for the New Yorker too, hasn't he? Probably. I yeah. don't know. I, I know he's a regular at, at New York Magazine, so yeah. usually the two don't they, they oh, don't allow a lot of overlap. Gotcha. Anyway, here's, uh, here's the few, first few paragraphs, and then we'll keep going from there. The new literature of minimalism is full of stressful advice. Pack up all your possessions. Unpack things only as needed. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Give away everything that's still packed after a month. Huh. <laughs> Wake up early. Pick up every item you own and consider whether or not it sparks joy. Okay. See if you can wear just 33 items of clothing for three months. Well, yes. See last week's episode with Courtney Carver, Project 333. Know that it's possible to live abundantly with only 100 possessions. That's uh, our friend Dave Bruno, who had the 100 Thing Challenge way back in, I think, 2010 or 2011. Yeah, it was 10 years ago, for sure. Yeah. Don't organize. Purge. Digitize your photos. Huh. Get rid of things you bought to impress people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Downsize your apartment. Uh Uh-huh. Think constantly about what will enable you to live the best life possible. Never buy anything on sale. Okay. You know what's funny? The way you're reading this, uh, because I listened to the audio version of this. Oh, really? Yeah, and I don't know if she read it or not, but it is like, um, it's it's just funny how the different tonalities... Uh, it really changes the article. What was the tone in, in, in the one that it, it was? Um, I felt like it was very uh, pretentious, high and mighty, holier than thou. Uh, vocal fry? Was there a lot of vocal fry in it? What is vocal fry? 
uh, when someone talks like this to try to sound smarter than yeah. they are. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the sort of the highbrow stuff can be sort of vocal fry personified yeah. in many I mean, ways. In the same token, though, I mean, that is... Actually, just just keep reading. I don't, I don't want to derail us because I will if you let me. Recently, I spent a few <clears throat> months absorbing the new minimalist gospel by beginning with Marie Kondo, the celebrity decluttering guru whose book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, has sold more than 10 million copies. Patent pending on the gospel of minimalism. Which I, I hate when I, anyone <laughs> uses that, that phrase, the gospel of minimalism, because uh, it, yeah. here's why I hate it, because it's, it's incorrect. It is. And here's why it's incorrect. It presupposes you're proselytizing. Gospel is synonymous mm -hmm. with, with proselytization. Prosel proselytization. Thank you. You're welcome. And it, and I am not proselytized. I'm not trying to convert anyone to minimalism. And, and, and By thus, definition, I mean, you really can't. Right. Which is, yeah, but yeah, keep going. No, it's, it's a, there, this, and as our listeners will see, there's a lot of backhanded. <laughs> yes. And I, and here's the thing. I, Hyperbolic. The only yeah. reason I'm being defensive is, is because I don't think the article was, was unfair so much as it was inaccurate. so incomplete. Yeah. Incomplete. Inaccurate. Yeah. Or yeah, I'd look at it as inaccurate because of. It is incomplete. F phrases like gospel are, are inaccurate. Most mm -hmm. of it I don't find to be actually inaccurate. I find that it, the, the overall thing is is incomplete, yep. right? Like if I were to say, you know, Sean is wearing shoes. Yeah. Like that's true. Right. But that's like an incomplete statement. And if I just say that, it presupposes mm -hmm. he's not wearing anything else. Sure. All right. Yeah. Keep going yeah. here. <clears throat> Has sold more than 10,000 companies and whose, whose stance seems twee but is rooted in Shinto tradition, having fewer possessions allows us to care for those possessions as if they had souls. I also turn to Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, who call themselves the Minimalists. Hey, oh, shout out. Um, yeah, we don't just call her. I mean, we, we are the Minimalists. It's weird when, when, uh, when people have like little, it's almost like snarky little remarks there, right? It's mm. like, imagine if um, she was writing an article about Chris Martin mm -hmm. and she said, Chris Martin and his band, who call themselves Coldplay, well, no, you would just say their band, Coldplay, right? Yeah, right. And, and it's almost just like a little well, backhanded it, thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude, That's this is what this article is riddled with. But I'll tell you what, dude, it's funny because when we came up with theminimalists.com, mm -hmm. this is what I was afraid of. I'm not afraid of it anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 10 years ago, I'm like, who are we to call ourselves the minimalists? Right. And you said, yeah, you're right, Ryan. What should we call ourselves? What should the website be? And I was like, I don't know, dude. And you're like, well. I remember one of the, the titles you were like, it was something like an unturned leaf or something like absurd. And I'm, like, we were like, we were spitballing oh, ideas. They were, yeah. And they were definitely absurd ideas. Yeah. And the minimalists was the best idea. And that's why we, we, uh, we used it as a placeholder. And as soon as we come up with a better name, we'll uh, change it. That's right. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> who call themselves the minimalists and under that name run a blog, publish books and host a podcast that is downloaded as many as 3 million times a month. Hey, oh, Not a very minimal amount of downloads. Right. And now, so a few things. One is we're best known for a documentary on Netflix called Minimalism. And yeah. so she doesn't mention that. She, hey, these guys run a blog um, and, it, and, yeah. and have a podcast. And it's like, okay, yeah. that's fine. I, we do do those things. This I'm, is an op-ed piece, man. Sure it is. Yeah. And, and the reason I bring that up, though, is you have to be careful when someone's writing about some, something like this because uh, it's incomplete. I totally agree. All right. Uh, run a blog, publish books, host a podcast, is download as, million, as many as 
three million times a month. I read the blog Be More With Less, which is written by Courtney Carver, who came to minimalism after being given a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and views the practice as a pathway to love and self-care. Also on my syllabus were the books Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McEwen. Good book. It's a great book. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of like the minimalist business book. Yeah. For whom minimalism is a habit of highly effective people. The More of Less, Finding the Life You Want to Live Under Everything You Own by Joshua Becker, a former pastor who wants his readers to free up their time and money for charitable causes, and Goodbye Things, The New Japanese Minimalism by Fumio Sakaki, uh, who writes with winning self-deprecation, admitting that his simple lifestyle might make him seem like a loser. Um, yeah, he's he does a really great job. Uh, our, our friend Matt Diavella actually hosted a panel with him once. In, in New York City and uh, after he directed our documentary Minimalism. As I waded through this course of study, I felt like a dirty sponge being irritated in the microwave. I was trapped unpleasantly by a cleaning by a cleansing fire, but a cleansing fire was beginning to rage within. I condoed my sock drawer, tenderly unraveling lumpy balls of wool and cotton and laying each pair flat. I don't know why, but that sentence is like, it just really, lumpy balls of wool. Oh, that's so clever. Dude, yeah, let me let me unpack. Sorry, I'm not trying to be a jerk, um, but let me unpack this for a second. Mm-hmm. She just listed. Yes. She just gave us a fire hose of information. She was relating to us, and I'm sure she left some things out of the fire hose of things that she took in. Right. And when I when I read that paragraph, I'm like, the reason why this isn't accurate is because it, think about reading all the health advice mm-hmm. and trying to apply all the health advice to your life. Yes. It's like even Ben Greenfield, he came out with this book. It's like the health Bible that still doesn't have everything in there. I couldn't imagine. Right. I forget. I don't know how many pages it is, but it's a huge book. It was 1,200. He got it down to, I think, 660 or something. 660 it's pages. It's a textbook. 660 pages of health advice. And guess what? That's not even all the health advice. Right. So uh, this is where I say it's inaccurate is it's it's just not a good representation of how people function normally. Like they will read different bits and then they'll take their own ingredients. What works best for my life? What health advice you know works best for my life? Mm-hmm. And then they apply that to their life. But yes, reading all this, I could see where she would be very overwhelmed. For sure. And especially because there's necessarily going to be contradictory advice between these these different people because we each have different approaches. And by the way, she's leaving out you know, two of, of, I think, the most important voices in mm. all of this with Leo Babalta being the number one voice. I mean, you can't write an article like this without writing about Leo Babalta. No, no. In fact, the whole thing should be about Leo Babalta. He, he, uh, to me, in 2006, he was the guy who found life, founded lifestyle minimalism. Yeah. And, and he may not be the first person who, who coined the term, but he is the guy who made it popular with Zen Habits. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll join us in San Diego to, to talk about this. Yeah. But he's the guy. And then Colin Wright, who really, I mean, made this uh, lifestyle just extremely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and uh, how you can leave someone like Colin Wright out of this, I, I don't know. But which yeah, I don't fair wanna, enough. Which I don't want to live Colin Wright's lifestyle. Right. So, yeah. But I'll tell you, yeah, what Colin did is he helped me see how he used minimalism 
to live the life that he wanted to live. And that's, yeah. And that's what all these people are doing that, that she's mentioning. Sure. And all of these are, are, are good people. And so she said, yeah. I entered my parents' apartment as a whir- whirling dervish of minimalist self-satisfaction, hectoring them to toss out their wow. kitchen doodads which we and excess do- Tupperware. Which we don't encourage people to do. Yeah. During the minimal episode, Ryan, you and I were just talking about, in fact, like the thing that we didn't want John to do, who called in and left us a voicemail. He, he said, you know, how do I get my dad to get rid of the stuff in his basement? I'm like, well, you don't. I don't think I can convince him to be a minimalist. It's yes, like been, please don't. Yeah. One of the worst things you can do is show up at someone's house and tell them they need to get rid of stuff. Uh, within hours of arrival, I had filled six large trash bags with clothes to donate. See, I held, uh, irritating myself and everyone around me. You get rid of the things you don't need so you can focus on the things you do. <laughs> I sounded, I imagine... Like many of the converts to what might be considered the latest wave of intermittent American impulse. In 1977, the social scientist Dwayne Elgin and Arnold Mitchell observed that, for several years, the popular press had paid occasional attention to stories of people returning to the simple life. Elgin and Mitchell believed that this smattering of articles reflected a social movement that could bring about a major transformation of traditional American values. They called the, the movement voluntary simplicity and saw it as a potential solution not only to growing social malaise, but also to ecological destruction and to the unmanageable scale and complexity of institutions. They believed that a few million people were practicing full voluntary simplicity and that as much as half of the United States population was sympathetic, was sympathetic to do it, estimating the maximum plausible growth of VS, they wrote, that as many as a third of all Americans might be converted to the simple life by the year 2000. That didn't happen. But in 2008, the housing crisis and the banking and, and the banking collapse exposed the fantasy of easy acquisition as humili- humiliating and destructive. For many people, it became newly necessary and desirable to learn to rely on less. It is tempting to interpret the new minimalism as a kind of cultural aftershock of that financial disruption, and perhaps it is in part. But... At the same time that Kondo and her cohort have popularized a form of of material humility, minimalism has become an increasingly aspirational and deluxe way of life. I do agree with this. And and she brings up some really fair critiques of, of the residuals of what I would call the minimalist movement. Um, there... And so we're going to talk about this here, this next line. Let's just talk about this, and then we'll, we'll unpack it a bit. That's the rest of this paragraph, actually. So re- read that last line again, please. The deluxe. Okay. <clears throat> but at the same time that Kondo and her cohort have popularized a form of material humility, mm-hmm. minimalism has become an increasingly aspirational and deluxe way of life. Okay. The hashtag, hashtag minimalism, pulls up... More than 17 million photos on Instagram. Many of the top posts depict high-end interior spaces. Last April, Kim Kardashian West appeared in a Vogue video walking through her $60 million California mansion, a stark, blank, monochromatic palace that she described as a minimal monastery. Less is more attractive when you've got a lot of money. 
and minimalism is easily transformed from a philosophy of intentional restraint into an aesthetic language through which to assert a form of walled-off luxury. Wouldn't this be considered like a straw man argument? It, yeah, I, I think so. So let me just finish the sentence oh, sorry, here. Yeah. A self-centered and competitive impulse that is not so different from the acquisition act acquisitive attitude that minimalism purports to reject so let, let, let me so it's what it's saying is is that minimalism just to for me to paraphrase and make sure that you know we're on the same page it's saying that minimalism is encouraging you to uh live a more simple life but in fact encourages people to spend more money and they draw that tie with kim kardashian Yes, which okay. so so when you say it's a straw man argument, it's almost the the most exaggerated form of this. And by the way, I would I would even say that uh, this is me defending Kim Kardashian's sixty million dollar mansion here. Uh, <laughs> so I'll tread very lightly on that. But what I'll say is she does live in a minimalist house that is that is functionally minimalist. Mm -hmm. However, that is not the epitome of minimalism. It is a version. Of minimalism mm -hmm. just as when you look at my apartment that I lived in in the minimalism documentary and I owned very few items probably less than 200 things mm -hmm. that was also a version of minimalism mm -hmm. you and I did when we were filming that we were you know, sleeping in your Toyota Corolla when we were on tour quite frequently we did not have a whole lot of money and that was a version of minimalism that really worked well for us because we didn't have much money yeah by the way um, this the argument here is effectively, and we'll get into it as we we read on f further. Minimalism is essentially for the affluent. Well, it's interesting because going back to that straw man argument, it's like here's Kim Kardashian, she's affluent, she's a minimalist. Therefore, minimalism is just about affluence, right? And and it's that is it's just it's. That's why I. That's why I say this article is also inaccurate. Well, let, let's let's because it draws these. It it, it creates these strawman arguments, and this isn't the only strawman argument that this article does. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I think it's really unfair. Two things. I think it's unfair to say, well, just because Kim Kardashian and Kanye West are rich as all get out, uh -huh. um, and they call themselves minimalists, well, that that means that it's not obtainable for poor people to be minimalists and under that straw man argument yeah like uh, even for us yeah we don't aspire nor do we ever plan on having a 60 million dollar uh minimalist architecture uh mansion yeah so i, I think that's unfair to, to, to use kim kardashian and then basically tell poor people like you'll never get there uh who says that they want to get there right um the other the other thing too is you know, this, it's not fair to just sit here and say minimalism is just about having the money to, to live a minimalist lifestyle. Like we talk about so many other resources, uh, money, our time, our attention. It, she doesn't bring any of this up in the article. Sure. She, I mean, she literally, it's all around money. And this is like the critique I have of any, uh, any minimalist article I've ever seen uh, that's a critique on it. It always comes back to minimalism is only for rich white guys. Let's okay, let, let, let and that let, is hold and, on, and, hold and on, that's hold just it, it's just not it's not it's not giving the whole picture. Well, let's let's presuppose it's true for a moment. Let's sure. let, let's pretend for just a moment 
It, that, ju- it only on, helps on. rich white guys. L- let's pretend that for a moment we, mm-hmm. we don't get dozens of emails from people in Kenya and in India and in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and many other developing nations across the world telling us how minimalism has helped them uh, extinguish their desire for excess stuff. Let's pretend we don't get that. Let's pretend for a moment that you and I didn't grow up poor and wouldn't have benefited from minimalism as growing up. And let's pretend for a moment that minimalism helped only... So uh, let's pretend for a moment that minimalism solved only first world problems. Okay. So what? Yeah. That, that, are you saying that first world problems aren't worth solving? Yeah. Or that we shouldn't even think about first world problems? Guess what? Yeah, we do live in the first world and first world people still have first world problems. Yeah. And I wouldn't have a problem. And you know who brought this up to me actually was T.K. Coleman, our good friend. He was like, I, I don't understand that when people say, well, that's a first world problem. It's still yeah, a problem. It's still a problem. So we can discount all the, all the people who have grown up poor, including us, who say, well, yes, minimalism would have certainly helped me live more intentionally. It would have helped my family be more intentional mm-hmm. with the limited resources we have. By the way, who wouldn't benefit from being more intentional? <laughs> you know what's funny, man, is this makes me think why I even got into this or why we got into this man Mm -hmm. is I wanted to help people who were facing the same problems I had. And at the time it was a, uh, overworked own owning too much stuff. Um, you know, just chasing, chasing money. Basically I wanted to help people who were having the same issues I had, even if it was just one person. And if it helped only one person, mm-hmm. it really does make it worth it for me. Um, again, I think it's unfair to exclude anyone who 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 has less than a sixty million dollar mansion and say that they really can't be a minimalist or they're you know they're, they'll never be a true minimalist because they don't have a sixty million dollar mansion. She brings up a good point though, and so uh, I'll I'll pivot to this next point. And it, before I, I get to that though, let me just say this. Yes, Ryan, you, you still have family members who are poor, mm-hmm. right? Sure. I certainly do. Yeah. And would they benefit? I'm asking this question sincerely. Would mm-hmm. they benefit from a more intentional use of their resources? Of course. Now, also, Kim Kardashian and and Kanye West are wealthy. Mm-hmm. Would they benefit from a more intentional use of their resources? Yeah, of course. Great. That is, does that mean that minimalism is for everyone? No, it doesn't. What it means is that many of us are discontented with whether it's the clutter, whether it's the inappropriate or misuse of our time, mm-hmm. it's the misuse of our attention, it's the misuse of our creativity, it's the misuse of our relationships, the forsaking of our relationships, the forsaking of our community, the forsaking of our individual personal growth, the, the forsaking of the, the our values and our beliefs. And if we can reprioritize our life because we're discontented with those things, then minimalism is one tool that is in a toolbox, a sort of self-help toolbox Mm -hmm. that we can use to simplify our lives. But it is merely a tool. It is not a destination, however. Yeah, I will say to to her point, and I think maybe this is where you're going, and if not, then this is another good point that she brings up, is in our society, in a culture of compulsory consumption we will commodify anything we can yes 
So has minimalism become commodified? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it has. And I think that's the language that needed to be used here is we have commodified. I mean, I walked by a Gap a few years ago and they had a shirt that said minimalism on the front of Mm -hmm. it. And it made me just sort of scratch my head. Like, well, wouldn't real minimalism not have the words on the front? Like, but of course it has become commodified and the, the minimalist aesthetic is what has really become commodified. Right. And Kyle brings this up in his book as well, The Longing for Less. He, he, it's an aesthetic he has identified as airspace, where all of these things sort of look like this very bland Instagram ad aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what not obviously not what you and I are trying to accomplish with our sort of brand of minimalism, mm-hmm. our, our recipe of minimalism ours has to do with starting with the stuff it, mm-hmm. it, it is about the material possessions but that is that is the first step that is the initial bite at the apple mm-hmm. once we we deal with this external clutter we're able to look inward and start dealing with that internal clutter the emotional clutter the psychological clutter the mental clutter the spiritual clutter uh this clutter that's that's going on in our lives that manifests outwardly and physically yeah and I do agree with her that you can have a sort of stripped down aesthetic and still not be minimalist right. in, in certain areas of your life, but it can still be a really great first step. So I don't, sure. I'm not even opposed to those, those uh, really stripped down aesthetics. I'm opposed to commodifying. I'm opposed mm-hmm. to thinking if I get the perfect kitchen with a perfect minimalist granite marble countertops I'm going to be happier you're not going to be any more fulfilled or any happier with those things she does bring up a great point that sure if if it becomes aspirational like oh that's my dream kitchen sort of thing then you're sort of missing the point and and I and I applaud her for bringing that that might be a problem and that's where it does lead some people man we don't have time to cover this whole article do we no I think we should probably get into the questions but Sean let's put a link to the article yeah in the show notes there are two there are two things I want to talk about in this article real quick uh at one point she compares minimalism to Marxism um sort of sort of but it's just funny how she's like oh well Karl Marx said this in his, you know, in his book, mm-hmm. um, Karl Marx also wore shoes. Right. He also wore clothes. And he enjoyed scrambled eggs. And he enjoyed scrambled eggs, just like many minimalists wear clothes and enjoy scrambled. I mean, it's like again, it's another straw man argument. And then, like the very last paragraph, she talks about minimalism, and she, oh my god, I'm tempted to have you just read the last paragraph. But it's like this backhanded compliment of like, well, maybe minimalism is just this escape. And it's not, and it's not an escape in a good way. It's basically saying that we distract ourselves with minimalism. But here's what I'll say: is that we all look for escapes. That's why she wrote. She writes to escape. For sure. I mean, that, that's why most of us write. Yes. So, so the yeah. So the question is: is what you're using as an escape? Is that is it a healthy escape? Hmm. And with minimalism, I would say. Uh, if you are focusing on the right things, if you are focusing on loving people and using things, like it is a very healthy escape. Yeah, and think about the, that word escape in its fundamental definition, right? If you are in a trap, mm-hmm. you want to escape the trap. And the trap we're trying to escape isn't the trap of consumption. We all need some stuff. It's the trap of consumerism. Yeah. And so when we do commodify even minimalism, when we want the perfect minimalist house, then 
that is another trap. So she brings up a good point. We don't want to run from one trap to another. Could it have been articulated differently? Mm -hmm. Of course it could have. Gia is probably the most talented millennial writer that I I read, and Mm -hmm. I'm still a giant fan of hers. Mm -hmm. But I also know she's under quite a lot of pressure from organs like The New Yorker to create content. Right. And when you're under pressure to create content, that's a nice thing. You and I don't work for anyone. So we're not under pressure to create content. We come here once a week and we record a podcast. And the only thing we do is we we generally answer people's questions. And we have an unlimited supply of questions at this point. We could continue to, we come here every day and create content if we wanted to create content. Sure. But that would, that would dilute what we are trying to do Mm -hmm. with our message. Yeah. And so, I think we need to be careful when we um, when we talk about minimalism. I think critiques like this are fair, and mm-hmm. she brings up some really fair points. Um, I think what she brings to the forefront is an incomplete picture. Oh yeah, and I think maybe, unfortunately for her, it's probably necessarily incomplete because it re- would require a book length essay in order for her to actually address the. She would need a whole section on Leo Babalta and Colin Wright and then Mm -hmm. minimalist architecture and minimalist literature and minimalist everything else, all of these different uh, things in order for it to be be more complete. And ultimately, I'm not looking for her to pat us on the head or pat us on the back and say, good job. But I would like to see... uh, by the way, she didn't reach out to us. To talk. No. She's been invited to she, be a guest on our podcast, by the way. Yeah. That's no. how she knows we get 3 million downloads a month. Yeah. No, she uh, she cherry-picked what she wanted to. And you know what? Based off of what she cherry-picked, if that's what minimalism was, to your point, like it's still helping somebody. Right. And like that, that's not bad if you're helping somebody. Well, let us know what you think <clears throat> in the comments on Patreon. Let's go ahead and get into some of these questions here. If we have time at the end, I'm going to talk to you about Kobe and Andrew Schultz. I'm going to table those for right now. Those are two separate topics. They don't have anything to do with each other. Okay. Although Kobe, actually we'll talk about Kobe real quick. He he passed away recently, obviously. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, a, when you sent that to me, Yeah. I thought it was a joke. I'm like, this isn't funny. Like I know we have a dark sense of humor, but this is not funny. Although I did hear one Kobe joke that was funny. It blew it, my mind. It was from uh, uh, Tony Hinchcliffe. And it's really hard, especially in times like this, to joke about someone who just died. And so, uh, but so Tony Hinchcliffe, it was three just simple words. It was a great joke. He said, Kobe passing? Never. Because <laughs> he was such a good basketball player. Yeah, I mean, and the, the joke was he was like, he was quite the ball hog. But yeah. what what that joke is really about is not about his death. It's about his, his legacy uh, of being you know, a phenomenal basketball player, so good that he didn't ever need to pass. Like, he he was like the one-man team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was greatness personified. I mean, uh, th- there was some... Th- it's hard to argue that anyone is more competitive than him, maybe Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. but but he was the epitome of, of greatness, and he had this entire other chapter ahead of him. And the reason I wanted to bring this up, though, is it is a reminder that, yeah, we say life is short and... I think more than that, life is fragile. You had someone who is the strongest person in the world, physically and mentally, uh, a leader, a um, media mogul, uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, just a, 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 an incredible strong person, a, a strong parent, 
a husband, a family man, and here he is at 41, mm-hmm. instantly it's over. Mm. And I know there are, you know, there were past allegations that, that you know, some things that happened in his early 20s that, uh, by the way, he was never convicted for. So, like, uh, right. I, I'm certainly not going to relitigate that or put him on trial for anything. Um, it, it suggests that none of us are perfect human beings, obviously. But he was at a moment in his life that he he was moving on to the second chapter. But the future is not promised for us. Thankfully for him, it seems that he lived a life that was still a complete life. Yeah. He he, stri- he he strived for greatness every day. And you can see that in his quotes. You can see that in the things that he created. You can see that in the way that he played. And if we can live like Kobe, then you know that living isn't in vain. Let's dive into some of these questions today. All right. <clears throat> Robert wants to know, how do you start letting go? There's so much I know I should get rid of. I just move it from one area to another. Well, I, so start letting go. Let me let me let me mm-hmm. say this. Let me give you a word of encouragement. You got this. You can do it. Yeah. And and I want you to 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 realize like it is totally within your control. Moving something is not letting go. No. If you were to pick up a pile of rocks and move it to the other side of the room, now you have a pile of rocks on the other side of the room. Yeah. And that's quite often what we're doing with our stuff. I'm going to give you a short answer on this one, Robert. And Ryan, if you want to inject anything else, you're welcome to. We have a great start here page over at theminimalists.com. Literally, if you just go to theminimalists.com slash start, you can find the topics that you're really trying to address mm-hmm. right away. And uh, whether it's the 30-day minimalism game, that's a great way to start. could be your own packing party. It could be downloading any of our free resources on our resources page. But then we also have a bunch of essays about different areas of intentional living. So go to our Start Here page. I think it's a phenomenal place to start letting go. Totally agree. Well, I mean, I think you said it, man. He has to start letting go. Like that is what it comes down to. And it doesn't matter how you start, but you do have to start. I mean, it kind of goes back to... Oh, what was her name? Uh, Angelica. Oh, from 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 the from the uh, minimal episode. It was. I'm sorry, Virginia. Angelica, Virginia. I was close, but Virginia had that problem of you know all of her loved ones who have passed away. She's holding on to all her stuff, and she's overwhelmed. And yes, like she has to find the emotional leverage. Uh, Robert needs to find the emotional leverage to start letting go. But Robert, you do have to start, man. Like yeah. that is that's key. All right, our next question is from Rachel. How do you organize all your passwords? I just write them all down on my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I get them tattooed on me. <laughs> Crap, I have to update my bank password. Uh, Sean, you uh, you don't you don't use uh, one password. What do you use? Dash Lane. So, so podcast Sean uses, he manages a lot of our, our passwords uh, for our business. And he uses, uh, and we, we pay for this, it's a, a service called Dash Lane um, that basically inputs everything. So you memorize one very complex password your, yourself. And, and from there, it securely uh, autofills your, your passwords, essentially. Mm. Uh, there are also, there's also a spreadsheet that, that Sean and Ryan and I share with some generic passwords for some of our like Amazon logon and, and, and stuff like that. But uh, Dashlane or, or some sort of password manager is, is, a, is a great way to manage all of your passwords. I feel like we shouldn't be like 
<laughs> well, I guess it's our patrons. <laughs> but I feel like we shouldn't be like, well, the, here's what we use. And if you can figure out how to crack into these systems, you'll have all our passwords. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you can figure out how to get into Dashlane. Then... Actually, yeah. Then you can get into anything. It doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I mean, there's just some iron here. You're, you're, you're already a multimillionaire if you're figuring Dashlane yeah. out. But yeah, use a spreadsheet. Use a service like Dashlane or uh, what was the other one? 1Password. Yeah, 1Password. I know like uh, we've got some friends who use 1Password. But but yeah, there are plenty of tools out there. Deborah, how do I get rid of paper clutter with no scanner? I mean, how do I shovel snow without a shovel? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, um, so, so actually, there are some ways, though. And thankfully, we, we have some non-traditional scanners now. So you and I, we often recommend a scanning party. If you're unfamiliar mm-hmm. with the scanning party, it is one of our 16 rules in the Minimalist Rulebook over at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. You can find it over there. But uh, the scanning party... Uh, oh, just go to theminimalists.com slash scanning. You could even see the scanner that Ryan and I share. Mm-hmm. We have a, a scanner. Now, the reason that I like having a, a Wi-Fi enabled scanner is I can scan documents mm-hmm. and I can scan physical photos. Right. And uh, I can basically scan anything. And then when you go through the scanning party, though, what it makes you realize, whether it's documents or old photos... I'm 98% of the stuff I'm holding on to. I don't not even going to scan bother yeah. scanning. You just start it. getting rid of stuff cuz you don't want to take the time to scan it. Right. And that's a, that's indicative of yeah, you not wanting those things anyway. Right. And, but then you do hold on to the <clears throat> you don't even actually hold on to the physical items. Once you scan them, you can let go of them. And by the way, it's much safer to have your your pictures scanned mm. and your documents scanned because what happens if you have a fire or a flood or mm. something like that? All of your great photos that were sitting in your basement that you never scanned, you're putting off to someday. Yeah. Guess what? Guess what? Someday is not a day of the week. And so so putting that off until someday means that something might happen to those those precious photos that you're holding on to that now they're ruined. Now, mm. we also have something amazing in, in our pockets. And I, yeah. I have an iPhone in my pocket. And, and with the new iOS 11 update, there is a scanner right on the notes app. Oh, really? Yeah. And so awesome. if you have documents you want to scan, you don't even have to have a scanner now. You can just use the iOS app and, and uh, the notes app on your iPhone and scan whatever you want to scan. Also, our good friend Jordan O'More, who does, he's the filmmaker for The Minimalists. We just put out the first episode of Unpacking Minimalism. And one of the things that he talks about, so Unpacking Minimalism is a series that Jordan is hosting on the Minimalist YouTube channel. And where he takes something that we talk about on the podcast and he unpacks it a lot farther. And so he interviewed a bunch of people at the WeWork offices, uh, Joel and uh, Dominic, and he interviewed podcast Sean as well and himself talking about sort of best practices, what, what's in a minimalist wallet? Mm. And I really love what, what Jordan does is in his wallet, and he, he actually he, um, inspired me to do this on my own mm. as well. Uh, so anything that has a number on it that he doesn't use regularly, he just takes a photo of it, puts it in a folder on his phone, so he has access to his insurance card or you know whatever other even his, a picture of his driver's license. Even though I'm sure you keep your driver's license on you still, but having a backup. Sean needed this because his wife's purse got stolen recently, and thankfully Sean did the same thing. He had a photo of his wife's driver's license and her passport, all the things that got stolen, so that if they do get stolen, you can recover them relatively quickly. And so having photos of those things 
actually when the things get stolen or lost or whatever mm-hmm. allows you to have a uh, a backup that isn't taking up any physical space for you yeah so deborah if you've got a smartphone you you have a scanner um i don't have the fancy iphone 11 i still got the iphone 5 Not iphone 11 you have ios 11 oh i oh i see what you're saying but well the ios on the iphone 5 mm-hmm. they um, scanner. they're is it really on the yeah. notes section yes oh my god i've been using this app called iScanner. Yeah, you don't have to do it anymore. It's built in. Oh, iOS that's 11. Good to know, man. iScanner, it'll turn your stuff into PDFs. Um, but there's like, I, I have the free version, which you can only do like one file at a time. So it's not like the best use of time. Yeah. But it's uh, all built in now. That's awesome, man. All right, cool. All right, Julie wants to know how do you deal with other people's clutter when you live with someone else? That's a, I need a little bit more information on this, Josh, because is she living with her mom? Uh huh. Or is she living with her roommate? Right. Or is she living with her? Is it her house? Right. I mean, there's a... Uh, it's incomplete information. Yeah. Let, let's let's make some assumptions. If you're living with someone else in someone else's house, you don't deal with their stuff at all. Right. Uh, the only way to actually deal with it in any scenario is to be the simple that you want to see in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, be the declutterer that you want to see in the world to show the people the benefits. Ask some good questions. You know, mm-hmm. we... we, we We've said earlier, how might your life be better with less? But what are some other questions that you can ask your mom or sister or roommate or husband or kids that you are living with? Now, if it's your house... You get to make the rules. It's your house, yeah. right? Now, you might share that with someone. It could be you and your husband. Mm-hmm. And so you get to make the rules together. Yeah. But that what does that mean? That means some effective communication. Unfortunately, we make up rules in our mind. We're living with someone. We're like, I think things should be this way. And then he's over there. I think things should be this way. You know what? Let's not ever talk about this because it's going to be too difficult to talk about it. So that's going to build up what? Resentment. And we'll just have some passive aggressive actions towards each other. Right. <laughs> How helpful is that? Right. Yeah. Bex and I, we, we had a a miscommunication yesterday about about some stuff and thankfully what we do is we say hey we, we really need to talk about this because clearly there was a miscommunication one of us is feeling upset or hurt or rejected or dejected by this conversation we obviously don't want that for each other so let's have a conversation about what happened and in doing that having that conversation having it now we kill godzilla when godzilla is a baby mm-hmm. we don't wait for godzilla to take over the city yeah julie what you do have control over though no matter whether it's your house or uh, your roommate's house or your mom's house is you have control over your space so uh start there and you know you can totally uh, make the rules for your own space. You don't have to force those on other people. All right. Ben wants to know, what's the best way to help a family member wake from a consumer coma? Consumer coma. I like that. I do too. That could be the podcast episode, Sean. Yeah. Consumer coma. Consumer so, coma. Here's the thing. Consumerism is a giant problem, mm. right? How do you, but let's just take that word consumer out for a second. How do you help someone wake from a coma? Mm. you don't you can't you literally can't wake someone from a coma yeah and and so the only thing that we can do what what do we do when when someone to continue the metaphor here if if podcast sean were to go into a coma like the only thing we could do is like show up and be supportive in the ways we know how to be supportive be kind you know read I guess we'd read Hemingway to him because he's such a Hemingway fan. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'd show up with Rush CDs and, and read <laughs> Hemingway and, until until what? Until he got out of the, the, the coma on his own. You know what we wouldn't do? 
We wouldn't go to the hospital and say, get out of your coma. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Shaking him. Wake up. Uh, and but you know what it might be my first inclination to want to do that oh, wake yeah. up yeah we have things to do sean <laughs> and, and, and it just that would not be helpful and so we can't do that literally in real life either we, we can't say hey you need to wake up from your consumer coma we can't because it becomes judgmental in a way we don't want to judge the person for their behaviors because you know what um who has a question ben ben yeah. how long did it take you to stumble across minimalism how long did it take you to simplify your life maybe you're 30 years old maybe it take you th- took you 30 years to get there yeah it might not happen over 30 minutes for your friend who is in this consumer coma it might take them a while to wake up the best way to get them to wake up though is to be kind and supportive and let them know that you are their friend no matter what their no, no no matter whether or not their habits are are different from yours. Yeah, it took me 28 years to wake up. And I'll tell you what dude, sometimes I still fall asleep and I got to wake myself up. Mm. So um yeah, it's a it's a constant battle, Ben. Uh yeah, be as supportive as possible. All right, Lori's got a good question. How can I help my boyfriend declutter his years of sentimental items he is considering bringing into our new home together? He has so many collectibles, childhood art projects, and other junk. Lori, you know, we just kind of talked about this with Julia's question. Um, you get to make the rules together. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that uh, your boyfriend lives by your rules. And that certainly doesn't mean that you have to live by his rules. I think first, though, what, what Lori needs to do is look in the mirror. Because this question is really telling. Uh, because I'm going to re- reread the first part of it, Ryan. Mm-hmm. How can I help my boyfriend declutter his years of, quote, sentimental items mm. so there's some projection there she well she's she put sentimental in quotes i didn't add those quotes to the mm-hmm. notes here mm-hmm. she said sentimental i mean she it, might be quoting him right yeah. but but why 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 quote him on that because i think i mean the way i took the question i understand what you're saying and you you might absolutely be right the way i took the question was that her boyfriend is already preparing her i i'm gonna i have these items i'm going to bring into the house because they're sentimental to me so he is expressing to her like these are sentimental um so she's asking like how do i help someone deal with their sentimental items right that are sentimental to them there are two reasons you quote you quote something Mm -hmm. you are either literally quoting someone Mm -hmm. which um you would need more context in order for that to be the case or you're doing it ironically oh there's a third reason uh you're just not a great writer like me i might put things in quotes every once in a while that maybe shouldn't be in quotes when i had a different context (laughs) i know but freud but freud would say something about this then right he he would say there there's a part of the subconscious Mm -hmm. that when you are putting something in quotes here uh, we do it all the time like oh look at your uh, I'm I'm obviously taking this to the to the terminus here, mm-hmm. but like, look at those sentimental items you're holding on to, Ryan. Mm-hmm. And, and there is there's there is a bit of that in here. And sure. the reason I know it's in there because she follows it up, Ryan. What does she say at the very end of this question here? He has so she's projecting. Yeah. He has so many collectibles, mm-hmm. childhood art projects, mm-hmm. and so she's calling his collectibles. His she's also calling his sentimental items, and other junk so she's calling his sentimental items junk yeah and that becomes a problem yeah and and so you're right if she had just put sentimental in quotes and mm-hmm. that would have been it mm-hmm. I, I, pro- I probably wouldn't have latched onto it so much but she finishes up the question by calling someone else's stuff junk this is the this is the george carlin skit personified when george yeah. carlin says how come everyone else's stuff is shit and your shit is stuff yeah well that's 
that's how we see things. Like, well, I want to get rid of other people's shit, but I need to keep my stuff. When, look in the mirror. You know what? You probably have some things where he's like, huh, why is she holding on to that junk? I, as one of the titular minimalists, I still have things Bex looks at, and she's like, why do you have that junk? Mm -hmm. And I don't own barely anything. <laughs> I own next to nothing. And I still own some stuff where Bex is like, huh, I'd never own that. And guess what? Bex, I'll live with a minimalist, uh, and she, I, I see some stuff of hers, and I'm like, hey, why do we still have this? Mm. But I realize what I'm doing is I'm projecting my own preferences onto someone else. Mm -hmm. And when we're living together, we have to be able to agree on things. Now, Bex and I have a really nice rule. This is not part of the minimalist rule book, but it's a rule that works really well for us when it comes to holding on to things, but especially when it comes to bringing in new things because bringing in something means we're probably going to have to let go of it at some point. So mm. not bringing something home is just letting go in advance. Yeah, man. Tweet that podcast, Sean. Now, now, the rule that Bex and I have is before we bring something into the house, we both have to agree on it. Mm. And so going forward, maybe you can have a rule similar to that where it's like if we, both, if we don't both agree that this is right for us, functionally aesthetically if it's not going to add value to both of our lives we're not going to bring it into the house now that requires a lot more communication it requires more deliberation and sometimes it re requires some waiting but it makes our purchases or acquisitions far more responsible in the process yes she Lori, you're gonna have to uh you're gonna have to have a tough conversation not just with your boyfriend but with yourself and yeah, you guys are going to have to come to an agreement. There might be, um, I, I want to say compromise, but I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. It just might mean that, you know, you're looking at his stuff and you're saying, you got a bunch of junk. And he's like, yeah, well, you got a bunch of junk. Uh -huh. Well, then there's a compromise where you, you need to say, all right, I will get rid of, you know, 10 items, whatever it is. Like, just find something to agree on. I mean, that's a very arbitrary number. But maybe it's not It's maybe it's maybe not junk, or maybe he does think it's junk. You don't know because you haven't had this conversation mm -hmm. with him yet, right? And so, yeah. so when you look at his stuff and say, you've got a bunch of junk, he might say, instead of saying you, you've got a bunch of junk, maybe say, hey, help me understand how this adds value to, to your life and how yeah. it's going to add value to our life. Having, reframing the question positively like that, mm -hmm. help me understand are these five words that, that have really, uh, I'm sorry, three words that, that have, have really helped me communicate better. Instead of saying, you've got junk, help me understand how this is going to add value. And oh, by the way, I'm gonna help you understand how some of the things that I'm bringing into our new house are gonna add value. Oh, and you know what? Some of these things I thought were gonna add value to our house, they're actually junk. And I was, mm. I was kidding myself. Yeah. And so, he might realize the same thing that you're realizing as you're moving in together. You might help him realize that by getting rid of some of the things, he's actually going to experience the benefits of living with less. Yeah. Mariah and I, we just moved into a loft apartment. It literally has one closet, like one closet period. Uh, every, all our clothes, um, the, the board games we have, I mean, anything that we need to store, there's one closet to store it in. Um, I would say, oh man, I, I want to say the majority of it, you know, probably it's like half the closet's Mariah's stuff, a quarter of the closet is our stuff, and then another quarter of the closet is like my stuff. But like, I don't judge Mariah for mm. taking up half the closet. If any, like, I would give her the whole closet and just keep my stuff in a Tupperware under the bed if it really made her happy. 
And like, that's what it comes down to is like, how, how, how much of a happy relationship do you want to have? What can you let go of? What rules can you let go of? Or what angst can you let go of to, to support your boyfriend a little bit more? But I'll tell you what, Josh, what I really love about Laurie's question here, the Oxford comma. Thanks, Laurie. All right. Casey writes in, how do you stop yourself from accumulating more clutter once you get everything cleaned up? Okay. So we often treat minimalism as though it is a destination, but it is not a destination. It is a vehicle that brings you to your destination, right? And so uh, once you get there, so to speak, you're at a new you're at a new place, but your life will continue to change. When I first embraced minimalism at age 28, I was recently divorced and my mother had just died. I moved to an apartment on my own. I was letting go of things that was all about me and and my lifestyle. But my life changed over time. By the way, I was still in the corporate world. So I had to have a certain number of dress shirts and ties and suits and dress shoes. Those things stopped adding value to my life when I walked away from the corporate world. Mm. And so the best way that you can do it is you can continue to ask important questions. And uh, there are five questions I always ask before buying something new. I'm not going to go through all five of those right now, but you can find those at theminimalists.com slash before. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you can also download the free wallpaper with that. So you can have it right there on your phone or your computer before you're about to buy something. You can look at your phone and say, okay, will this thing add value to my life? Is it the best use of this money, et cetera, et cetera. There are five really important questions to ask before bringing something into your life. Because once you've decluttered, you don't want to reclutter. Yeah, what you're talking about, Josh, is setting up rules for yourself. And part of those questions, I mean, that's a rule. I'm going to ask myself these questions before I buy something. Um, you could refer to uh, the minimalist rule book um, and, and pick out some rules there to help you help avoid bringing in more clutter. We got some more questions, Ryan. Before we do that, I'd like to listen to a song because I need to use the bathroom. So is there a good song that you like that we haven't listened to on the podcast yet? <clears throat> um, so I recommended the drummer boy, but I think Josh has got something else. <laughs> yeah, let's... Uh, you know what? We're getting ready to go on tour, and Noah Gunderson is going to be our guest mm-hmm. uh, at our Seattle tour stop. He's actually not going to be playing music there, but he's one of my favorite musicians. And he has this new acoustic album that comes out on, I think it comes out on Valentine's Day. And so let's listen to Lose You, the acoustic version from Noah Gunderson's new acoustic album a raven and a dove and we'll be back to answer some more questions in a moment she was ghosting on a high note like a halo from a gun she disappeared in smoke the last light of the sun and I was burning my eyelids Trying to stare into the blaze Trying to see around the edges But the light got in my way I'm desperate for a message Calling out your name I'm sending up a raven and a dove Trying to quill the panic Rising in my chest Like a mother at a missing person's desk Alright, we're back, Ryan. What's our next question? We got a question from uh, Matthew. To what extent should books be considered clutter? 
I think books should be considered clutter. You know, I think Marie Kondo has this rule. If you have you, the perfect number of books to own is 30. And I disagree with that because, um, well, there's a, there's a few sort of, there's a few reasons I disagree with it. Although I applaud her for putting up a, a boundary, right? Yeah. And if, if she were to say like 30 is the right amount of books for her to own. Right. I totally agree with that. And, and so figuring out what is the appropriate amount of books for you is important. 30 can be way too many for some people. And by by the way, what do you mean by books? Are you talking about audiobooks? Because mm-hmm. you can have functionally unlimited books in your pocket right now. Mm-hmm. The same with ebooks. Yeah, I've got the Kindle app on my iPhone. I have unlimited books on my my iPhone. Then mm-hmm. is that too many books? Or, or are you talking about just physical books? Now, me, I have uh, I have two sort of bookshelf towers. If you if you've seen my house tour, you see there's these these two like small. They probably hold I don't know forty books or so each. I don't know the exact number of books. I don't count my items, but I know that if I bring a new book home, like I just brought home the new Ben Greenfield book, which I don't think will even fit on my bookshelf. It's so big. But as I bring a new book home, I have to remove something from my bookshelf. And so I let go of a book and I donate it. And uh, it makes me very, very cognizant of what I'm bringing into my house because if I'm going to have to let go, it's a one in one out rule there. I'm going to have to let go of something. Otherwise I'm just going to keep accumulating more books. Yeah. So Matthew, figure out what's right for you. I mean, that's really the question. So why do you want books? How often do you read books? How often do you lend them out? Um, Those are questions you should be asking yourself and then come up with your, with your own number. And Hey, let us know in the comments, what number you come up with. Spencer, do you have experience with serious mental clutter, like anxiety? Uh Uh-huh. ADHD. What? (laughs) OCD. And One, two, three. depression. <laughs> what did you do about it? Yeah, let's tackle these one at a time. Anxiety, yes. So yeah. I, I think quite often anxiety stems from overstimuli. Yeah, it's a symptom. Yes. When you're feeling anxious, your body is trying to tell you something. Right. And but what do we do? Unfortunately, what we do is we we seek out more stimuli to try to pacify the anxiety, and right. it tends to make things worse. Yeah. So the first step to anxiety is figure out why you're feeling anxious. What is creating that anxiety? Yeah, the best way to turn the volume down is to not turn it up in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ADHD, man, um, I struggle with this a lot. Uh, It's hard for me to focus. I've actually considered going back on ADHD medication, but it's like, that's such a temporary band-aid. So when you say going back on, you've been been diagnosed with ADD in the past, but you've been on, uh, um, you've been on medications before Mm -hmm. for it. And it helps. But the problem is that it helped you. Yeah, it helped me. But the side effects are uh, almost more anxiety-inducing. It's really, mm. it's a really weird thing. It's like when you're on the medication, it works. But then when you start coming off the medication, it's like there. It's like a. It's like you. Drink, I drank too much coffee or something. It's crazy. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh. So my point being this is that sometimes there are medications that can help you. Um. But if you don't, for me, not having medication was a better option for me because I didn't want to deal with the side effects and it takes a lot of discipline. I'll tell you the more discipline I have in my life, the better I get at, uh, dealing with my ADHD. Um, but it's still always a problem. I mean, it's like, uh, someone who's clinically depressed, which we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, OCD is the next one here. (laughs) Yeah. It's something that I've been diagnosed with and, you know, people will often think I'm joking when I say I have OCD and, it's partially a joke. Perfect example was is I wanted to go into depression, but that wasn't in order. <laughs> right. Well, I've, I've got a uh, an expansive question or expansive answer about depression. The OCD thing, I think quite often is is triggered by, I mean, just the other day, you know, we were at, my house is relatively neat and tidy. I mean, mm-hmm. you see the, the house tour that we did. 
like we didn't clean up beforehand. Like I didn't like oh, I gotta hide the you know whatever. Like yeah. it's just that's how it always looks, right? And we we have a daughter, and there's three of us living there. But but I make sure that I sort of clean as I go. That's one way that I handle OCD because I can't deal with things being everywhere. And I. The one th- other thing that I do is I explain to people it's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. And hey, would you be willing to help me out with this because it's my own my own problem? Mm-hmm. Now I don't have the form of OCD where I have to like touch a door handle three times or repeat phrases, but I do have something very similar to that where uh, it, it's very physical. So like the books need to be set uh, a particular way. Um, I often count count steps in my head. So anytime I go upstairs, mm-hmm. like I count. And it's not me knowing that I'm doing it. Um, that doesn't bother me that much. What really bothers me is is the physical clutter. And so the thing that has helped me most with OCD is getting rid of anything that is excess. Uh, getting it, it's it's not Spartanism, but it is a form of sort of visual asceticism, meaning I, I don't have many things for decorative purposes. We don't put things on the wall because that bothers me. And uh, I'm not prescribing that to anyone, but I'm saying that is what has helped me personally. Yeah. Now let's talk about depression. Okay. Uh, the only thing I'm going to say about depression is we did basically a whole podcast, a maximal episode about it with mm-hmm. TK Coleman. It was called The Power of Thoughts. It's probably the most personal episode that I've ever done. Mm. Uh, the three of us recorded it together. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because we really dive deep in into depression. Do you have anything to add about depression? Yeah. Ryan? I mean, some people are clinically depressed and you know, I don't want to undermine that. Uh, same thing with being ADHD or OCD. I mean, some people have legitimate um, mental imbalances. And, you know, what you can do is you seek professionals who can help you with those clinical problems that you have. Um, but learning how to deal with those is, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit more difficult for others. Um, sometimes, you know, we, in that uh, podcast episode you're talking about, Josh, we talk about how a lot of the times you do depressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that is true in a lot of cases with depression is that, you know, people could exercise a bit more, uh, eat better, um, not have a self-deprecating. Like I know family members who are, they do depressed mm-hmm. because it's all they know. Yeah. It gives them a sense of certainty <clears throat> and comfort in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, three things I will prescribe to anyone who, who has issues with these things this will always help and it's not going to fix your problems, but it will help. You just, just mentioned two of them. Exercise, rigorous exercise, uh, exercise, a healthy diet. Now we can argue about what a healthy diet is, but, mm-hmm. um, in fact we will next week. Actually we will. Yeah. We got <laughs> Paul Saladino coming in here. We'll be arguing with him about that. And then sleep, getting the right amount of sleep. Yeah. Those three things, they're not going to cure your anxiety or your OCD necessarily, but man, will they certainly help you manage it? Yeah. I sure will. All right. Bridget wants to know, why does clutter bring comfort? How do you create comfort without the clutter? Now, here's something that I can't relate to, man, because clutter makes me anxious. Right. I don't feel comfort by clutter. And I know a lot of people who write in who uh, are self-proclaimed hoarders, they talk about how much comfort um, their clutter brings them. Right. I think a lot of that has to do with self-talk. I mean, you, you can say it's bringing you comfort, mm-hmm. but is it really? If it is, great. I say hold on to your clutter as long as it's not getting in the way. If your clutter is actually making you comfortable, great. If you're actually writing in and you're asking this question, 
it is probably not making you comfortable. It is making you feel some sort of anxiety. And yeah. so you have to ask yourself, why is it making you feel that anxiety? And why are you perceiving that it is bringing you comfort when it's actually not? If you're feeling anxiety because you're like, you're thinking to yourself, oh, Josh and Ryan would judge me for this. We are giving you permission <laughs> to hold on to your clutter. If it's because of what other people think about you, that is, uh, yeah, that's probably the wrong reason to get rid of your clutter. Um, but I wonder, Josh, if there's something else the clutter is giving them. Is it the comfort of memories? Is it the comfort of, of uh, you know, having, I don't know, having things in our life that we think we might need, like I'm try- security in some way? Like, you know, like at the people who have bomb shelters with buckets of food. Yeah, you're bringing up something great here because comfort isn't necessarily a good thing. In fact, Mm. I can make a very strong argument very quickly that comfort is one of the worst things that can happen to us. Absolute Mm. comfort is debilitating. When, when I was in the corporate world, I lived a comfortable life, but my life was constantly a, a four to a six out of 10. So it was never outstanding. It was never miserable though. It was comfortable, but because it was comfortable enough, I, I didn't want to make any sort of change whatsoever because that would mean what? It would mean some sort of discomfort. But guess what? You need to get uncomfortable if you want to grow, if you want to change, if you want to become a better version of yourself. So get rid of the clutter and get rid of the comfort and become a better version of yourself. Let's answer Jeff's question as a as a final question here. Okay. Uh, my wife and I found the minimal lifestyle wonderful and are enjoying downsizing our things. However, my four children see things differently. How do I get them more involved in removing the clutter? Well, I think you first you declutter the children. Four is way too many. <laughs> Don't do that, Jeff. Yeah, so here's the thing. Congratulations. My wife and I found the minimalist lifestyle wonderful, beautiful. That's the hardest part. You are on the same page together. Holy moly. Congratulations. You're enjoying, this is the other part, enjoying downsizing things. I don't enjoy downsizing things. I don't enjoy decluttering. Mm. So bravo to you for enjoying that as well. However, my four children see things differently. Of course they do because they're children. And the reason your life is better with less is way different from how their life might be better with less. And so what you're gonna have to do with each of these children, which by the way, they're individual children. They're more similar to each other than they are to you perhaps, but even they are gonna be different uh, on the spectrum of intentionality, on the, the spectrum of letting go, you, uh, and the spectrum of their own values and their own beliefs as well. So how do you get them more involved in the process? You start asking them questions that get them involved. You don't tell them that. Yeah, this is how you get a kid involved in any anything. You don't tell them to go do the thing. You show them how to do it. You ask them questions. You allow them to participate in the process. They're only going to feel some sort of buy-in if they feel the need and the desire to participate. I got two things for you, Jeff. Uh, your kids. They don't get to set the rules. Um, so you can help them set the rules though yeah. and help them set boundaries. So you don't want to have to just tell them what they can and can't do. Ask them what they think an appropriate amount of things are. Second thing is kids love to contribute. Help your kids understand what they're contributing towards when they declutter. And that might give them a little bit of leverage.
I love it. All right, patrons. Thank you so much for being a Patreon supporter. We've got a lot of really great things coming for you yeah. this year. Uh, this is my favorite thing that we do each week is this Maximal episode. You give us the space <laughs> that we need to really talk about some of the things we don't discuss in public and, and wouldn't always discuss in public. And so I'm going to save the Andrew Schultz thing maybe for cool. next week or a yeah. future week. But um, No, patrons, you are awesome. And just so you know, Josh and I will never ever take you guys for granted thank you so much for supporting us all right y'all love people use things we'll see you next time bye the minimalists <laughs>